Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking of the author of the book titled Corporate Crime and Punishment, The Politics of Negotiated Justice in Global Markets, published by Princeton University Press. This book is really interesting because it helps document and understand this thing that has been happening around American law being used in corporate settings well beyond American borders. Um, And as this book demonstrates, this is very much a live issue um, and one that we really should be paying more attention to. So I'm so pleased to welcome the author of the book, Dr. Cornelia Wall, to the podcast to tell us all about what's going on here. Thank you, Cornelia, for joining us. Thank you, Miranda, for having me. Could we start off, please, with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? My name is Cordelia Wall, and I'm a professor of international political economy, and I'm also the president of the Hattie School, the University of Governance in Berlin. I was previously a professor of political science in France, and I had written my last book um, as a political scientist on the financial crisis, and I uh, produced a comparative study of bank bailouts in countries on both sides of the Atlantic, the United States and Europe. And I was very much intrigued by the um, negotiations back then between business and governments, uh, the financial industry, on how to save them during this moment of crisis. But afterwards, also by the judicial fallout or the lack of the judicial fallout that um, followed the financial crisis. And uh, it's the question that sometimes in newspapers is summarized as why is nobody from Wall Street in jail? So I started looking into what were the consequences of fraud or mismanagement that uh, many accused the part of the financial industry of and stumbled upon an area that I knew very little about, and that is corporate criminal law. And in particular, also the transformation of corporate criminal law in the United States and how it spread uh, across the globe in very interesting ways. And that's the story I then uh, wanted to trace and tell in this book, because it is a deeply political question of how we um, keep companies uh, accountable and liable in global markets, which are by definition beyond the boundaries of uh, any of the jurisdictions that would like to have control over them. Thank you for that background. Um, as you said, right, that that 
tells us a ton about the implications of figuring this out and therefore the importance of the book. So as we get into its content, um, I'd love to ask about one of the words, one of the phrases in the title, uh, negotiated justice. Can you tell us sort of what this means and what sort of challenge this implies in terms of how we might conceive of law and the economy and their relationship otherwise? Yes, and let me maybe start um, from the layman's perspective that uh, I consider myself to be a part of because I came at this without any knowledge of uh, legal scholarship. So when we think of justice, I think most people would say justice is about determining what is right and what is wrong. So it's a very simple question. If some act has happened and you try to analyze it, was it right or was it wrong is with within the justice system to determine and to define. And, and uh, we all have different legal settings uh, that imply how that would uh, function. But if something is either right or wrong, then the notion that you can negotiate it uh, is, is uncomfortable or is foreign. And yet in a lot of uh, legal settings, there are instruments in place that will provide for such negotiation. So the most known ones are plea agreements, for example, where you say I'm guilty and uh, by admitting your guilt, um, you can reduce, for example, your your punishment. But there are a lot of other instruments where um, the, um, the legal system tries to incentivize uh, the interaction between the person that is accused of a crime and those that have to do with the investigation. And you can negotiate part of what will happen in this uh, in this um, process. And that is what I summarized just very broadly as negotiated justice. So you can um, you can be part of a system that determines um, your guilt and the adequate punishment. And uh, that's a very broad term. So maybe some legal scholars who are listening to me are already uh, uh, shuddering a little bit. But what I was trying to describe with that title in the book is that um, we are moving worldwide uh, from a, a system where you would think of companies who've committed a crime of simply being taken to court or the individuals being taken to court and then their guilt would be established and they would be sanctioned for it to a system where um, the uh, judicial side will engage in the course of their investigation in uh, negotiations with the other party in order to be able to establish what has what acts have been committed and to seek uh, how to address them. And that uh, is new in some countries, maybe not in all. And it is a trend that is very much explained by the fact that we're moving in the global markets across boundaries and negotiation helps to actually being able to bring cases that otherwise you might not be able to bring if you would just seek to have a trial in court in a specific jurisdiction. Got it. No, that, that's a helpful um, overview and understanding and, and situates us uh, within, but not just within the legal aspect of this, which is helpful to start off. Is there anything further we need to understand about kind of just how radical a break this is between well, with our usual way of thinking about the relationship between law and the economy? So... <clears throat> There's um, a long set of discussions I've had with legal scholars, and some legal scholars would say that is no break, really, because it's been uh, going on in many varieties. And and this idea that you bring people to trial and then they're guilty and then they're put into prison is already uh, uh, quite inaccurate. So um, 
the the degree to which this is a break, I think, depends on your um, national system and how it functions. I would uh, probably say that um, it is quite common in the United States to have uh, elements of negotiation and in common law countries more general, I think that's not that foreign. In civil law countries, it is more foreign and it is more recent. And it's part of a, a general trend uh, that you can also document, not just in criminal law, but possibly also in other areas as well. But what I think is important about uh, about this trend, and you asked in your question, what does it mean uh, about the relationship between law and the economy? It means that if you enter in negotiations, uh, that factors will matter that are not just linked to the crime that you may be accused of. They're linked to your negotiation position. All studies of negotiations will uh, establish that there are certain attributes uh, of uh, uh, that will help you to negotiate better if you can negotiate from a position of power uh, or you can negotiate from a position of weakness. And if we think of companies um, who are very important corporate actors um, that provide jobs, that create prosperity, you would think that that can play into the negotiations. How much do you want to punish a company that may have committed a crime, but if you punish them very harshly and all the jobs will disappear and the prosperity might suffer, then maybe you don't want to punish them as much. And in a negotiation setting, setting that could play into how you uh, speak with them. So I'm, I'm not saying that necessarily has to be the case, but if we move into a negotiation setting, then who negotiates, who negotiates matters greatly. And that means, for example, one hypothesis, if you're a small and insignificant company, you will get a worse deal than if you're a very big multinational corporation. But on the other side also, I would suspect that if the government or the country um, that can throw the weight of their market into the negotiation is a very big and important economy, they can probably negotiate better deals if, they're, if they um, have a, a counterpart that is not their own company. And, and this is what's happening in my book. So if you are the Department of Justice from the United States who negotiates with, on the one hand, the threat that the company might use their license in the entire American market, they can probably get better deals than if it was the Justice Department of Luxembourg. And so I think it greatly matters who negotiates and with market with what market size and that means that economic indicators are important and that means also then how justice is being done will follow from it and that leads me to claim what is a bit of a provocation it means that the economy shapes how the law is uh, is being handled and it's not the law that defines how the economy is shaped in this global context hmm know that that's helpful to understand, um, especially, as you said, in these practical settings. Can we get into then kind of how we've gotten to this point? Um, you locate in the book that this in many ways starts uh, in the U.S. domestic areas of criminal law that then go on to expand past U.S. borders. So can you tell us about how the U.S. approached corporate criminal enforcement in domestic criminal law um, settings in ways that later evolved? Yes, absolutely. The United States uh, evolution is central to my story, and it's an entire um, chapter in the beginning of the book where I try to explain uh, the evolution of corporate criminal law in the United States over the last two decades, so I would say starting in the 2000s. Because the trend uh, that I see is that um, 
it used to be, uh, even in the U.S., much more of an objective for prosecutors to put individuals for a corporate who are linked to corporate criminal criminality uh, to trial and to sanction them also with very concrete um, uh, punishments such as prison sentences, for example. And I, I mentioned I started with the financial crisis. I, I compare in particular the financial crisis 2008 and 2009 with the savings and loans crisis in the United States, which was followed by a lot of legal uh, proceedings, including uh, hundreds of um, trials and sanctions that included, uh, uh, of course, pay financial payments, but also prison sentences for individuals. And in the beginning of the 2000s, you also had very big corporate scandals such as Enron, for example, where the uh, management of the company was sentenced to um, over 20 years in prison. So that is the 2000s uh, starting point that I have. And, uh, and then I observed that these uh, cases become more and more rare and the literature on corporate uh, criminal uh, liability in the United States seems to show that it becomes harder and harder for prosecutors to successfully bring a case against corporate giants, against very big um, companies that have an importance for employment and, and uh, um, prosperity. And what the Department of Justice um, did during this time, not through legislative change, but through uh, guidelines, was to give discretion to their prosecutors um, to help them to build a case by incentivizing uh, corporations and corporate management to uh, cooperate with investigations through an instrument called deferred and non-prosecution agreements, where the prosecutor can say, we think uh, there is something there's some malfeasance, there's some misconduct. If you help us investigate it, uh, we might defer the prosecution. You are not guilty of something. You will pay a sanction uh, that we impose on you, but um, we, we defer prosecution until later on. And that is a, an attractive offer for both for the prosecutors who can bring a case and conclude it in some ways without um, risking a trial that could uh, simply fail. And it's an attractive offer for the companies who, if they cooperate, might get away without their guilt being established formally and uh, a payment that gets them uh, out of the accusation that they're facing. And these deferred and non-prosecution agreements really rose in importance over the last uh, 20 years. And with them rose uh, the, the settlements that one can see with corporate um very big in very big corporate cases. So if you're a newspaper reader, you would open the book and just see several hundred million or sometimes billions paid by company X, Y, or Z for fraud, for tax evasion, for export violations, and sometimes for environmental degradation. That's becoming more and more common, but it's something that to a certain degree worked well, um, allowed prosecutors to bring cases and allowed companies to settle them. And this development and these instruments are what I then look at because they, and that's another chapter in the book, have been used extra-territorially um, to a great deal uh, in this same period. And that then changed how other countries uh, started thinking about corporate liability and how to prosecute. Hmm. So before we get to um, how this changed other countries, I want to make sure we, we do discuss that exact point you finished on is how did this expand from being something that happened uh, within the U.S. to happening beyond U.S. borders? Yes, so that is a fascinating question. And when I discovered this, I uh, and again, I'm not an expert, I fell off my chair. I thought that the law in particular 
criminal law, which is about societal outrage of certain uh, types of behavior that uh, we consider to be against the well-being of society is deeply, deeply national. In the European Union, for example, it's something that is not a competence of the European Union, it's national competence. And uh, and there's very few cases of, of international criminal law. So this uh, body of uh, criminal law, um, I, th- I would have suspected is really a national phenomenon. And it turns out that Actually, there's quite a lot of movement over uh, several decades of expanding the effect of jurisdiction in these criminal cases, and that is uh, referred to under the label extraterritoriality. So this extraterritorial use of domestic um, uh, statutes and provisions is something that in the legal profession is well known. I discovered it, and it happens in different areas through very different ways and means. So the chapter that I um, dedicate to extraterritorial use of uh, domestic law goes sector by sector into how um, uh, uh, prosecutors or or courts established that they would have jurisdiction over different cases. If you take um, securities trading, the uh, nexus that links the domestic law to activities that may be abroad is the fact that these companies, even though they might operate somewhere else, are listed on, for example, the U.S. stock exchange and as such have to um, comply with securities regulation. In other areas, for example, in competition, it's because there might be an effect on the U.S. market. Um, If it is in uh, areas, we now hear in foreign policy a lot about sanctions and sanctions violations, And very often, sanctions violations are prosecuted based on the fact that the company could be a foreign company doing business with a third country, also abroad, but is using U.S. dollars for their payments and therefore using uh, the settlement systems, which implies that uh, U.S. companies will be part of what is considered a criminal activity and a violation of U.S. sanctions law. So if you go sector by sector, you will find that the reason for the extraterritorial or the extraterritorial use changes, but there is some sort of nexus that's established. And we see that it's a broader and broader set of sectors that will have one of these nexus. It could also be that you're using a Gmail account, which is a U.S. company, and that gives the mail and wire fraud um, reason to prosecute something. So there's a set of nexus, but they're getting more and more used. And so the effective jurisdiction of uh, a U.S. prosecutor saying that there's some malfeasance that are, is con- con- runs counter to our uh, domestic laws. We believe that jurisdiction here can be established based on this, that the next reasoning. Uh, and that is just becoming a more dominant ph- phenomenon that is mm-hmm. quite, uh, quite felt by many companies in the markets uh, that uh, connect somehow to the U.S. Now, that's not the the US isn't the only country where this is happening um especially when you think about things like where technology companies are based or leveraging sanctions so how does this US use of law beyond its borders that you've just described compare with for example similar um aspects with European law or Chinese law yes that's a very interesting question and my argument uh, would be that in the economic realm Uh, The U.S. uses it more and more effectively, but we're only at the beginning of this. So let me give you my my answer now, but I I would be very happy that we have this conversation in 10 years and evaluate whether that's still accurate. Um, 
the the way I reason in my book is very much building on the economic networks that you need to put into the negotiation. So if you can exclude companies from your markets or your payment systems or your data provision or your financial flows, that gives you this negotiation power that can help you to establish the effective jurisdiction I refer to. So you have to become a very important economic actor in these networks, and that is the case um, for the United States. And I build very much on the work of uh, scholars such as Aid Newman and Henry Farrell, who have referred to the economic uh, sphere of the United States and, uh, and the infrastructure of it as an underground empire. I, I agree with that reading, and I, I would argue that extraterritorial jurisdiction is really linked to the structure of this underground empire um, because it gives you leverage during these negotiations and, and then the capacity to punish way beyond your, your own domestic setting. Now, there's, there are other countries which are also of import, uh, important economic centers, and that means that their laws will have an effect beyond their boundaries. And uh, that is certainly the case uh, of uh, the European Union, for example, as a, I'll now say it as a collective uh, setting. Um, and Bradford, for example, has argued that we see a thing uh, that she calls the Brussels effect, where the legislation the EU produces will be copied abroad because the market is so important that it is advantageous to the economic users and the companies to do so. But this effect is different from the one I described, which is the active uh, instrumentalization or exploitation of the networks in order to push for some very specific strategic, political, geopolitical goal. I, I would argue that the Brussels effect um, that we also see is, is not um, the conscious extraterritorial use of instruments that are meant to be domestic, but it's an emulation effect. Um, but that might change. And, uh, and there might be that the European Union will gear up and use its economic might to also uh, become more coercive or push for certain goals. I currently don't see that that's the case, but it could it could change. And uh, one of the areas where it could change um, and is, is possibly already uh, thought about quite actively is competition policy, because here the uh, European Commission has quite an active role to play and could use that for geopolitical purposes as well. Now, the comparison with China is very interesting because uh, China has... Um, I think even explicitly said that they want to develop their extraterritorial capacity and be able to um, prosecute or, or investigate violations um, against their laws, even for people who are abroad. And I'm thinking here more in the context of individuals than companies, but it's something that, um, uh, um, they, that at least I've seen documented is an ambition. I don't see it as actively and as much used against companies, but it might be uh, that I'm not uh, privy to all that is going on by those who need to be in the Chinese market and uh, are therefore, um, even in very far away settings, subject to Chinese um, domestic statutes. So I'm happy to be corrected here. I don't see it as much in uh, the interactions that I study, but I do think the uh, um, topic is identified and it's something that most economic powerhouses will work on because it's an instrument of your influence abroad. So let's talk a bit more about kind of how it's being used purposefully as you explain that China is doing and wants to do, the EU isn't quite doing yet, but the US 
definitely is. So can you tell us more about how, why, and what some of the impacts are of U.S. government actors using legal action pretty directly to achieve policy objectives? Yes. So let me maybe give the example where it's clearest to everybody, and then we can talk about some of the gray areas. The area where it's clearest to everybody is in sanctions violations, because that is an objective that is a foreign policy objective. If uh, the U.S. has a foreign policy objective against Iran or Russia that expresses itself in sanctions, it needs the private sector to to implement and to roll out these sanctions because what what sanctions are is you're trying to exclude a country and the and uh, the citizens of the country or the companies of that country from economic relations uh, from financial uh, relations with um, with the outside and that's not a government to government interaction that goes through the private sector so you want to make sure that your companies no longer do business with Russian companies or with Iranian companies. And um, you you might be able to persuade your own companies to no longer do so. But what do you do with the companies who are abroad, foreign companies? And um, the answer here is that the U.S. has been quite effective in sanctioning, for example, uh, the French bank uh, BNP Paribas uh, for activities that were located in Switzerland uh, that were dealing with Iran. Um, and they were against the U.S. foreign policy of sanctioning Iran, they weren't necessarily in contradiction with the French or the Swiss policies, but at that time, uh, the um, U.S. had the means to uh, impose their sanctions violation on, and convict and uh, convict here the French bank. So this is something that has been identified as an issue for economic diplomacy because it means that when there is a disagreement on foreign policy objectives, um, that then the stronger country will win. If if I am a corporate player and I'm a multinational company and I know I will be slapped with very, very heavy fines for continuing to do business with a country that my own government might still be in relations with, but the U.S. is not, then I am more likely to withdraw from it. And that means that de facto U.S. foreign policy becomes the um, guiding line for the companies that are in that uh, economic network. And uh, when I wrote my book, Russia and Iran were interesting examples because the foreign policies did not quite align on Russia um, and and also not on Iran. Then uh, with the Russian invasion in Ukraine, uh, the EU and um, the US certainly are now completely in line, so you don't see it as much. But in cases where there is a disagreement on how to deal with a third country that the US would like to sanction, here you see that really corporate criminal law and um, is a very, very strong and persuasive tool. Mm. That is fascinating to think about, essentially, in some ways, those matchups. Now that we have a better understanding of um, how US law evolved in this way and how it's being used um, across borders, I'd love to pick up the thread you mentioned earlier about how countries are reacting to this. And I was especially fascinated to read in your book that there's a lot of different kinds of reactions. There's there's multiple things that countries are doing, some of which we see similarities between countries, some of which are really quite different. So can you take us through some of those aspects? Yes, absolutely. And let me start theoretically and then with some concrete examples. So uh, the interesting thing about the development I'm trying to trace is that we see a lot more corporate criminal cases being brought and, and therefore being brought out into uh, daylight. Uh, 
and to a certain degree, normatively speaking, that is possibly a good thing. We now know that there are activities that are um, clearly wrong and they're being prosecuted by some somebody and the U.S. here has become the global policeman. So that is um, from the victim's perspective or from those who are interested in uh, having a better world, that's that's good news because previously in the 1980s or in the 1990s, you would hear in uh, in a university setting that maybe uh, companies are above above the law because they could just move to another country that is more permissive and they would get out of it or because they're too important, nobody would ever bring a case against them. Now, if these cases can be brought, um, then two things happen. And they're both of them really an embarrassment to the government of the companies if it's if it's uh, if there's something that is across borders, the first thing that happens is we now know about criminal activities that haven't been prosecuted by the own governments of the companies in case. Let me take the Volkswagen emission scandal known as Dieselgate. Dieselgate was brought by the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States, but clearly everybody was asking where what were the Germans doing? Why were the Germans not investigating this? And of course, you quite quickly will hear, um, oh, they had an interest in, in not going after this. And, and it's an embarrassment for any case where you have foreign um, uh, foreign power go after a companies, you, you, the government uh, looks bad. The second is that in these very big corporate cases, when there will be a settlement of several uh, hundred millions or sometimes billions that are being paid, these are then uh, settlements that go to the U.S., um, and and uh, those are big amounts. So you also can quite opportunistically ask, well, why is our government not collecting uh, uh, some sanction or settlement or fine of com of companies that are active in our home market? And so that creates the incentive for uh, legislators, for governments, sometimes also for prosecutors to start thinking about, well, how can we be part of this process and and first of all investigate more effectively what our, our domestic companies are doing when they're abroad um, or in our home markets. And uh, if there is going to be a case that's brought against our companies by a foreign um, uh, prosecutor, how can we be part of that conversation? And this trend uh, created an incentive for many, com uh, many countries to revise and to think about corporate criminal liability and how you prosecute it. And that is the beginning of what uh, triggered this trend towards negotiated justice because the countries that didn't have instruments such as deferred prosecution settlements started working on similarly um, structured incentives towards negotiation, sometimes in order to be able to bring a case themselves in the same more flexible manner, and sometimes quite explicitly in order to be able to um, to participate alongside the U.S. prosecutors in an investigation that concerned their own company. So I'm thinking here, for example, of the ca case of Airbus. Airbus um, was uh, a, a quite a complex um, a case at one point that was brought by three countries together. But in order to do that, you have to be able to um, do across countries uh, an investigation into corporate criminal liability, and that requires legal change. So in my, um, in my book, I compare uh, several countries. In particular, I look at the United States, of course, but also the United Kingdom, Canada, France, Germany, and Brazil. And I find that most of them at one point started having some sort of um, uh, incentive-based uh, 
abbreviated criminal trials or uh, deferred prosecution agreements that they introduced, which uh, is, is a phenomenon of the last decade. Um, the United Kingdom has introduced deferred prosecution agreements in 2013 and uses it mainly for bribery investigations. Canada has uh, introduced what they also call a remediation agreement regime in 2018, but hasn't really used it. France has changed um, their uh, um, a corporate criminal uh, setting with the new court and uh, um, an agreement that's called a judicial agreement in the public interest in 2016. And um, in other countries, you see similar developments. The only country so far that's resisting these changes is Germany. And I find, I find that interesting already. Um, and uh, Brazil, for example, is a case where some investigations have been run jointly with the United States, in, in particular, very, very important corruption cases. Um, but they're done with some uh, instruments that are leniency agreements that are also quite different. So it's not that everybody starts Americanizing or importing what the U.S. has proposed, its variations thereof, but it is this trend overall towards negotiated justice. Hmm. Interesting to see that. Um, you mentioned earlier the idea that we could have this conversation in 10 years and see what's happened. And who knows, we might take you up on that. <laughs> um, but in advance of that, given how usefully placed your book is, that enough has happened that we can analyze it and understand it theoretically and practically, but there's also clear kind of, we don't know everything that's going to happen next. So while we can't yet move 10 years into the future and ask you to reflect back, can you help us think through what the future or futures of negotiated justice could be? So let me let me say what I think are some of the important conclusions I have now, and some of them are very basic, but it helps to spell them out. Mm -hmm. I, um, I'm part of those that write about what sometimes now is called geoeconomics or the geopolitical dimension of our economic, our world markets, our global markets. I think that when we look at how companies circulate, how... Uh, markets are connected and how the infrastructures in these markets are used, we see that, of course, a lot of it is about power relations. It has implications for security um, and it has uh, implications for um, who will get their way in uh, contentious issues. And so I think this, this geopolitical aspects of markets is the first um, uh, main conclusion that I have, and, and law here really is the instrument with which this is achieved. So people who are in the field of geoeconomics, uh, they a lot of times see markets as providing incentives, and that's the carrot part. I'm writing a book about the sticks uh, that are used in the, the geoeconomical world that we live in. And uh, so that means that law is not just a neutral, rational instrument with which we can all agree right and wrong is established but it is used for specific purposes in certain cases, and it can have biases. And I'm interested in these biases because when you look at, for example, the chapter that I have uh, on the U.S. use of the deferred prosecution agreements against companies, what I find is a bias um, uh, against uh, foreign companies and in favor of domestic companies because uh, you quite clearly see that, of course, when the Department of Justice investigates uh, corporate uh, criminal cases, the majority of the 
the cases they will investigate will be U.S. cases, as as one would expect. So over 80%, I think it's 84% or so of cases are U.S. cases and only very few concerned companies from abroad. But when you look at the fines that are paid and the size of these fines, um, the picture is quite different. So um, more than half of the fines that are collected at the federal level come from these foreign companies, which are only a smaller number of cases. And in part, that's due to the fact that bringing a case against a foreign company only makes sense when you have either a very important uh, misconduct or a very important company. So you would expect there to be some discrepancy here between the number of cases and the total fines paid. But I do, I go through some lengths to analyze the data, which is imperfect in many ways. And I still find that when you're controlling for whether it's a publicly listed company or a very small privately held company, um, and by the nature of crime that these companies are accused of, there is a, a bias that means that um, foreign companies will be, I think, uh, uh, I, I forgot the percentage, but significantly more likely to pay a fine. I think it's uh, to, uh, to the tune of one to six, uh, six times more likely, and they will pay a much higher fine as well. And uh, that is something that I'm happy to be dis- uh, that somebody can prove me wrong with, or and of course there's a selection bias underlying it. But you still see that um, this is a machinery that matters, and and because these fines and these sanctions are in the millions and in the hundred millions, they're very significant amounts. And so if um, we are in a world that's getting, uh, it's not just a neutral market that serves the benefit of everybody, but exposes you to to potentially coercion or bias or something that you have to take into account, then it's a much more geopolitical world that is much more uncertain. And uh, and I think that corresponds to what a lot of people are saying currently about the quality of the time we're in. Um, for, for economic actors, um, how you make decisions of where to run your business, how to be involved, what compliance to pay attention to, it's become a very, very important and financially important decision, and you can make very big mistakes on the side. Lots of interesting things to look out for and possibilities there. I, I do, in a lot of ways, hope people take up this research um, and, and see what evolves and what happens. Um, and maybe that will include you. I don't know. Uh, is there anything you're currently working on or looking to work on next that you'd like to preview? I am. I'm in the phase where, as most people, when they've just finished a book, they're observing things, but it's not actively uh, uh, in on my on my research agenda. But I am. Um, let me say, I may be concerned. I'm. I'm. I'm quite struck by how dangerous uh, the not just the world, but markets have become. And I'm interested in what most people recognize now is the connection between markets or the economy, between security, our international security uh, and, and the security system and energy and the energy transformation that we all know we have to achieve in order to save the planet. And they're linked in so many ways that um, a lot of people are calling for a coherent strategy. So at every single uh, governmental level now, what's your strategy to to avoid energy dependence from the countries that we know we can't trust or um, to make sure our um, our technology, uh, everybody needs to transform and have certain uh, make technological choices is entirely safe. And it's almost impossible to do all of them at the same time. 
but governments need to navigate their their way through and, and have to make difficult choices. And I'm very interested in how that is being done, who does it well, and who makes most mistakes. So if I'm if I have a sense now of what my next book would be about, it would be probably the the strategy in a world where you need to um, both manage the energy transition, your security, and the prosperity that comes through the global markets. Fascinating. Once again, a, a potential topic that is historical, is current, uh, has very important stakes to understand. So thank you for that little preview. And while you are, of course, exploring it further, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Corporate Crime and Punishment, The Politics of Negotiated Justice in Global Markets, published by Princeton University Press. Cornelia, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Miranda, for the conversation.